Hello and welcome to Long Range Sentences, the show where we choose an episode from the vast library of Star Trek to reminisce and discuss. Today on Long Range Sentences, we're picking up an episode from The Next Generation, Season 2, Where Silence Has Lease. And this episode was brought to you with the generous support of Cosmic, Lee Was, Sonu and Minipacks, who are our first for founding members over on Patreon. Thank you to all of you. You are totally amazing. If you want to find out how you can support the show and also get exclusive benefits, you can visit patreon.com forward slash long raid sensors or stick around after the show and you'll find out more as well. Um, so I'm Trev, I'm based in London and joining me from across the Atlantic in Canada is Big Daddy Cool himself, Alistair. Hey, Alistair. <laughs> Hello, Trev. What are you laughing at? What's so funny? Oh, I've never been introduced <laughs> as Big Daddy Cool before. That's amazing. That's awesome. I don't believe that. Just looking at you, just, <laughs> that is Big Daddy Cool right, right there. <laughs> oh. So to start off, we're actually going to go over some Trek lifestyle and some Trek news uh, stories. You know, much like we did in the last episode, I think it's a great way to warm up before we dive into the episode itself. Um, so, Al, have you got any updates you want to share? Yeah, well, we're now finally on all of the big podcasting services. So wherever you're listening to this, there's other options for you now as well. So in addition to being able to listen directly through our website, uh, we're now on Apple Podcasts, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on Spotify, we're on Stitcher, uh, we're even on YouTube as well. And so if you're listening on one of those services, but another one is better suited to you, you can grab us from there as well. There is actually one thing that I would like, like, like to mention as well. Um, another YouTube channel um, recently called Trek Expertise, literally a few days ago, did the top uh, their top 10 Star Trek um, countdowns on both the movies and the uh, TV shows. I'm not going to go through and we're not going to commentate on exactly what was said, but I want <laughs> you to get what do you think was number one out of the Trek TV shows? Just, just Let's just see. <laughs> are, are, we, are we doing like... Of the shows or episodes from shows? It was uh, the shows themselves, so, you know, entire series, yeah. Okay, I've got a feeling that Next Generation is probably going to be number one. Uh, no, it wasn't, actually. Do you want to know where that was? Was it Deep Space Nine? So, yeah, Deep Space Nine was number one, uh, and Next Generation number two. That actually makes me happy, <laughs> in all honesty. Um, because I, it's, it's one of those things, I love Next Generation. I mean, it's we, we discussed last episode. It's what we grew up with. Um, yes. I, I think that Deep Space Nine is a much richer show. There is so much more in the writing and the characters and, and things. And I, I do think that overall it is a far better show um, with some dark moments, but also some of the funniest moments in Star Trek too. And I yeah, think there's so many top 10 lists where Next Generation is immediately put at the top because of all the nostalgia there. You know, and it, it definitely deserves to be right up by the top. But uh, I am glad to hear that Deep Space Nine has taken that top spot. Yeah, I mean, um, it should definitely be up there in any in any sort of uh, Star Trek, you know, list of best shows, mm. um, entire franchise. I mean, we're not going to go into what our top 10 is of any of that stuff just yet. I don't think we've earned that yet. Have we making an episode <laughs> on that? Sure, we'll get to it at some point and annoy everybody. 
uh, hopefully make a few people ha- happy as well when we get around to it. But um, yeah, it's just really, really, really interesting how um, Deep Space Nine, it does often end up near the top when perhaps when it started, I don't think it got that same, you know, when it was on, on air, didn't really get that recognition. It, it, it um, was it was ahead yeah. of its time. Yes. In terms of the way that they did storytelling, which is, is more common with how things are now. So I think I think it's easier for people to get to to get into Deep Space Nine now just because the television landscape has changed so much since then. Exactly. Um, it's more like a current show, isn't it, really? The way mm. the, the show series is structured, you know, the sort of long, having long storylines that are constantly going on in the background, you know. Um, that's fairly what every show is like these days, isn't it? Exactly. And, and also it was the first show that wasn't set on a starship. Yeah. Which was a very big departure. I mean, it was enough of a departure just not having uh, Kirk and Spock and McCoy you know, when Next Generation came out, to suddenly have it yeah. on a station where they boldly just stay put was a yeah. very jarring experience for a lot of people when it first arrived. Yeah, well, we're definitely going to cover, you know, Deep Space Nine episodes. Um, we'll probably have one coming up within the next few episodes. Um, so stay tuned for that. Um, but what we're going to focus on for the next um, segment is one thing that, again, was part of our childhoods when we grew up, you know, with Star Trek in the 90s, late 80s and 90s. And, well, it hasn't stopped, I would say. It's something that continues to this day. Um, it was one thing that fascinated me when I was a kid without actually becoming directly involved with them or actually buying them or even making them a lot because I was probably too young. But Star Trek model kits. Mm. Um, so, you know, they they're were pretty common in uh, the, the 90s. They were quite easy to get in toy shops and things like that. I mean, Al, what is your what was your experience with model kits? Have you made them? Have you bought them? Do you still do that? Yeah, I, I had, uh, I've had some model kits, but model kits wasn't really something that I was that into. I, I did get one as a gift uh, one Christmas, and it was the Klingon Bird of Prey. And it was interesting because you oh, could choose which, um, whether it was in an attack position or in a flight position, which was kind of neat. But obviously it's stuck in whichever mode you put it in. And I remember making that and painting it and just finding that, one, it took a lot longer than I had patience for at that age. And also I wasn't very good at the painting side of things. I got some models later on. I got the, uh, the Ambassador class, USS Enterprise C. But and that was a, a, great, a snapped great, yeah that was a snap together great. kit as well yeah so I was able to snap that together and then I just didn't bother to do much else with <laughs> it really that's the thing isn't it I mean, it was the paint the paint job that would make or break a model kit you could build the thing but if the paint didn't do it it would look a bit naff wouldn't it <laughs> yeah and it's it's always been one of those things which that experience of building and painting the bird of prey has made me scared of painting other things <laughs> because I've always been worried, like, like I've got a lot of board games and they, they come with miniatures and there's some amazing paint jobs that people have done. And I always just kind of think like, I would love to be able to paint these as well. But I know that the moment I do, if I screw it up, then they look terrible and they're ruined for life. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. I've got Star Trek Ascendancy and there's just tons of starship models and I've seen people who've painted those and painted the star bases and they look great. And it's just like, I don't want to ruin them. I'm, I'm more happy just keeping them as, as the, 
the little resin and plastic pieces that they are without painting them. At least you know that, you know, it could be put together at some point to look perfect, you know, instead of mm. doing it and popping it up. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one day I'll just uh, pay somebody to, to do it, you know, contract them in to <laughs> paint my models. <laughs> yeah. So how about, you, how about yourself then? Was that something that you grew up with quite a lot then? I remember, um, I think my most vivid memories of Star Trek model kits is probably, I remember going into a comic shop. I grew up in um, sort of a seaside town in Essex and the, the, the largest sort of town near to me um, was a place called Colchester. And um, that had mm. a comic shop in it called um, Ace Comics and it's still going to this day. Funny enough, I went into this comic shop uh, when I was visiting my parents, and I, I actually had a, a day where um, I went with my girlfriend to Colchester, and I was like, uh, and they'd, they'd moved from where they used to be in, in within the town, but I went into the to the comic shop. It's still the same, it's still um, the same owner. I actually got chatting to the owner. Um, I was actually looking for some Star Trek and Transformers comics in there, funnily enough, um, and um, this is the place where I used to get a lot of my American comics, and. Um, yeah, I started chatting to the owner and I was like, oh, I used to come into your shop. Um, and he was like, oh, when? And I was like, when I was like 10. So we're looking at like, you know, um, pushing, you know, 20, 25, 30 years nearly. And he was like, God, I feel old now. <laughs> it's the same. It was the same dude. But um, yeah, I used to go into this shop and I was like, said, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old. And um, hmm. it had a lot of nerdy, geeky sci fi stuff alongside. You no, know, his main focus was comics, but it would have the things that would be around that as well, like the action figures and things. And so there was model kits. And I remember seeing the Star Trek model kits. And this was at a point before Playmates um, started making Star Trek toys. So there yeah. wasn't really, you couldn't really get a, an Enterprise like toy that you could play with. There were like little knick-knacky things that were flowing around. There was like, you know, there was like, I remember that weird like metal, like die-cast metal Enterprise that was from Star Trek V, which I got, mm. I had I had, I had the Dinky Toys one as well. Yeah. That had little discs that you'd put in and you'd spin the bridge around and it would fire them as like torpedoes out the very front. Oh, God, the original uh, the original, original series Enterprise. Yeah, I had That's that, it. yeah. My dad, like, there was some, like, vintage toy shop in Leicester when I was still in Leicester because I moved to Essex when I was young. Uh, but hmm. I was, you know, born in Leicester, um, spent my very early years in Leicester. And there was a, another comic shop called called The Final Frontier. Hmm, wonder why they got that name from. <laughs> <laughs> and it had in the window, it had like um, that Enterprise. Like they obviously had some secondhand toys in there as well. My dad, I remember, went like berserk when he saw it. It was, oh my God, like that. I remember that being out, that Enterprise. He would have been, I think, um, probably, bit, he would have been too old for him to have bought that and played with himself. Because, um, you know, in, in the late, in the early 70s, I think when that came out, I think he would have been already in like in his late teens. Mm. Um, um, I thought, oh God, that's so cool. I, I want that. I want that. And I was like, you know, six, seven years old at the time. My dad got it for me. So I, I, I had that. And it had a shuttlecraft, I think, that came out the bottom. Mm, yeah. Really inaccurate because it didn't yeah. come out the bottom. But, but it also, it didn't allow it to stand on its own, though, with the doors open. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you just opened the doors, didn't didn't you? Yeah, and you could sort of stand it. But it looked pretty good, really. And it mm. looked pretty, I wouldn't say it was super accurate, but. It looked like the Enterprise, you know, it had NCC 1701 on the top and Enterprise on the top. But yeah, there wasn't it's, really... It's, it's, it was as accurate as we had it back then. Yeah, exactly. Without getting a model kit, you know. Um, yeah. So there wasn't really any toys um, of, of note then. Nothing like what we would get from Playmates in the you know early mid-90s. Um, yeah. So the only thing you had really, if you wanted to have some kind of a 
you know, a replica of, of a ship um, would be a model kit. And it was like, like AMT, I think, were the, were the people that made the model kits. They, they, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. I still remember going into a store because it was a similar experience for myself as well. That um, I went to a shop in Manchester. I sadly cannot recall the name of it, but it was a sci-fi store that was right next to a bookstore that my father would go to. So he would go into this right. bookstore. I would go next door. So we kind of part ways at that point. I go into the sci-fi store and they would have all sorts of stuff. And most of the stuff that was in there was model kits. And they had a couple of ships from different series and different models and things hanging from the ceiling. But they did have a couple of Star Trek ships there as well. But I just remember kind of looking at this wall of just AMT boxes with pictures of like the USS Excelsior on the side, you know, or the Miranda class and so on. The actual artwork on the box is beautiful as well, wasn't it? Like painted mm. kind of, yeah. Yeah, it's always one of those things where it's like, I wish I was de- I was good enough, decent enough to do these things justice. Um, because, yeah, the, the yeah. box art was beautiful. The models, when they're done properly, are fantastic. And some of the demo models that they had on display were brilliant. Um, sadly, that shop does not exist anymore. Uh, they were, oh, right. unfortunately... Uh, one of the ones caught in the blast during the IRA bombings of Manchester. Oh my god! Yeah. So yeah, and I would imagine that the insurance probably didn't cover that, and especially with the kind of stuff that like stock that they had when you're dealing with collectibles, that's not yeah. an easy thing to restock. So um, my my understanding is that they they more likely just went out of business because they never reopened. Um, so my favorite sci-fi store as a kid was blown up by terrorists. Kind of a sad ending there at the end. <laughs> but they had some fantastic Starship models in there at the time before that happened. Yeah, well, at least you got to see them, I suppose, at some That's point. That's it, yeah. And it's it's still one of those fond memories of going into the store, but knowing that, you know, I, I, I wouldn't really buy anything from there. I, I was too young anyway. But it was just to be able to go in and just marvel at what was available, you know, when it wasn't, like, everywhere, because it was just before we start seeing stuff popping up in Toys of Us and filling those shelves with yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, I had that comic shop, they had the model kits, but the stronger sort of memory of like, oh my God, these are cool, was there was another shop in the same town um, in Colchester called BT's, which is a toy. I think they were a franchise, and there was some BT's toy shops scattered around the UK. Uh, this is one the of them familiar. Yeah. yeah, kind of a yellow background with a blue with sort of block sort of capital black text, I think was their sort of logo. And they were they sold everything. They had like video games, action figures. Um but yeah, they had they had like model railway and, and model kits, um, like airfix aeroplanes and stuff, but they had Star Trek model kits. And I remember going in there and just being in awe of the ones that were hanging from the ceiling, the ones that had, that had been built. Obviously someone that worked there was maybe into the models and he would hmm. build them. But my favorite um Basically, my favorite Star Trek ship ever is the uh, the refit USS Enterprise and uh, mm. from, from the, the original series films. Um, so, well, that and the one seven hundred one A, you know, they're kind of both the same thing. Um, so, I would uh, see that someone had built that and had it hung. And it looked amazing. He got the per- the paint was absolutely perfect. It was the right color. Even put some like faint like sort of uh, wear. Like, like almost like not quite battle damage, like not like big huge scorch marks or anything, just like a faint bit of like wear that made it look just really cool. Um, and I just wanted one so badly. And I remember I used to like absolutely like nag the crap out of my my dad, especially to get me one. But he would obviously, you know, quite rightly tell me like, "Look, I can't get it for you because you won't be able to build it." 
and you know, um, <laughs> and they were cheap. You know, they were like sort of probably twenty, thirty pounds um, mm. in those days. So probably maybe double that in today's money. Um, but yeah, um, so they weren't like sort of a, a casual thing you could just casually buy. Um, but I remember he did cave in at one point. My dad was into models. You know, he wasn't like a big model kit builder, but he would do the odd one like aeroplane and things every mm. now and then. Um, and I managed to persuade him to get the Excelsior. Uh, one of the AMT model kits. So we got the Excelsior and we built it. And I think I helped him to build it, um, but we couldn't paint it and we didn't have the right paint. So it was kind of a bit crap. Um, it was like very pasty because we kind of didn't really give it an undercoat of like, you're supposed to give it like an underlayer coat, aren't you, of the actual mm. base color of the ship. And then you sort of paint over the sort of details on that. I might be wrong. Sorry to anybody who's awesome at these model kits and I've just like blasphemed. But um, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a way of doing it, basically. We put the decals on um, mostly fairly well. They were very tricky to put on, though. Um, but like we did some things like we painted like um, the sort of the the nacelles, like the, the bits that would light up in like the TV series and the movies, like the, the middle part of, the, of um, the nacelles. We painted that red when it should be kind of blue. So it looked a bit crap. Uh, but yeah, I really loved having it. Though. I thought I thought I thought it was absolutely awesome. Um but we didn't yeah. really get any others. I think probably that we're getting that one and we're seeing how we didn't quite, you know, live up to what we hoped it would look like. Um, and I've dipped in and out of it, you know, since then, um, like now there's kind of, there's actually quite a lot of model kits like, like now, but like I see like, like AMT made that the enterprise, the reefer enterprise or the enterprise. A. I'm just going to call it the enterprise a from this point on. Um, <laughs> I think they've been making that one model kit since like the motion picture and they just knocked it out. Every time there was a, a movie would come out, um, they would knock out an update of that model kit. So there's like a Star Trek five edition. It came out when Star Trek five come out. There's like a Star Trek six edition. And actually um, I've looked on eBay like a few times over the last few years and there's often sealed um, uh, uh, set uh, like sealed uh, model kits of, of the enterprise a, you know, that's the Star Trek five one, especially in the Star Trek six one, mostly from America, but they're quite cheap. So I might actually, I know you can get modern versions, but I just want to get one of those original ones that I really wanted when I was a kid. Um, and I think the modern ones are just the same mold. I don't think they've really mucked with it too much. Um, I can't yeah. remember who it is that makes them these days, but I think they've just bought the, 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 the molds off AMT or maybe AMT still do it. I don't really know, but um, I think they're the same anyway. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's a, a friend of mine uh, called Chris who has been making a ton uh, of these models. They're absolutely fantastic. I've got some uh, pictures that I'm going to share with you. And for anybody who visits our website, longrangesensors.com, you'll see it uh, in the show notes uh, as well. Uh, yeah. so these are just some of the, uh, the images here. But he's basically been working for a while on... Oh, wow, it looks amazing. The Refit Enterprise, yeah. It's a 1 to 350 yeah. scale. This one's from Polar Lights. And yeah, that's a ginormous one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely humongous. And like, there's a, a whole internal bit for, um, for the hydroponics bay. Uh, you can see right through the shuttle bay into the expanded shuttle bay that they, they had in the film and stuff. Um, it's incredible work. And the amount of detail that has to go into the hull, because this is all the Aztecing. So the, the Aztec is this kind of like offset to make it look like there's all these yeah. panels that that's what it's all assembled with. And in the motion picture, it was extremely prominent, but it had this kind of shine and sheen to it. 
And so when you kind of angle the ship to the light, you can see all this Azteking. And so when he was sending me all these pictures yeah. uh, as he was producing it, there's little bits of tape that he's had to put over everything before he spray paints. And so we're talking like layers and layers of this stuff. And it's absolutely incredible. He's then got, um, this was one of the later ones he did. He had uh, a bunch of models that were 1 to 1400 scale. Um, so basically every single ship that he had was all in scale with each other. So you could really kind of get a sense as to which are the big ships, That's which are right. the small ships. You know, so he, he's just got this massive collection of all different types of classes of ships and stuff. And I was asking him what it was like doing this massive one uh, to three fifty scale uh, compared to all the others. And he was saying that the smaller models you can kind of get away with when you're using a paintbrush because any paintbrush marks aren't noticeable. Uh, the larger ones you are having to spray paint. So that was a new skill for him to learn. And he, he also said it could be largely just be down to fitting the lighting kit and interiors. But for him personally, the biggest challenge with the larger model was the stamina, trying to just get the whole thing finished. After so long, you get sick to the back teeth of it. You just want yeah. the damn thing finished, uh, which makes you want to rush certain aspects. Yeah. Then you aren't happy with the finish, which leads to an even greater frustration. And that's definitely something that I could resonate with, that the larger the model goes, the less chance there would be of me getting the willpower to yeah. push through. You know, and he was saying that uh, the larger models, you have to pace yourself you know, and split it into stages and have a decent break between those stages. And he's still got the nacelles to um, fully attach and a load of decals to, to still put on. So he's managed to wire up the nacelles to it, but they're still not physically like, attached properly. Yeah. Um, but to give you a sense of the scale... This, this is a model that is about an inch under three foot. So Same. it's a pretty big model for it as well. That's not too far removed from the actual studio model then. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah, because it was what, like a four or five foot model, I think they were using on the. I think so. For those. Yeah, it was around that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I never really, I was too young really to sort of really go into it and, um, you know, build one, but. Not long after that, Playmates um, got the rights to Star Trek toys. So we got a really, we got a nice set of starships that came out of that. Um, that mm. Really good Enterprise D, which I got. And I used to play, played with like, to, to absolutely went crazy playing with that thing. It was awesome. And that sound effect. Did you have the original release or did you have the Generations release? I had the original release. Um, so it had like nice. bells lit up. Um, yeah, the, gen mm. the Generations one had like sort of scorch marks on the hull, didn't they? And the hull kind of could break. Up. Yeah, that's that's the one that I had. So you, you push little buttons at the very front of the saucer section and these two panels would pop off and you get uh, little red flashing lights underneath to kind of in, like show damage. And that was cool. And I really liked that. But just for general use, it always felt kind of odd with all the scorch marks that were permanently there. And so when I was playing as a kid, I always had to just kind of imagine that the scorch marks weren't there. Yeah. You know, I, until I wanted to have damage. I remember seeing it in like a toy shop. I think I, well, so I would have already had the, the, I think I got like that Playmates Enterprise Day. That was about 92, 93. Um, when it came That makes sense. Like, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, literally, it was probably when their first wave of things they brought out, I think, uh, potentially. I've got a whole load of their stuff. I've got like the transporter um, room. Um, I've got a bunch of the figures. But anyway, yeah. Uh, there's a whole toy sort of thing we could go into, but 
I remember when I saw that Generations version, I was like, what's that supposed to represent in the film? And I was like, oh, yeah, it's when it, like, blows up or something. I was like, well, it doesn't, like, it just blows up in one big explosion. Oh, well, God, the saucer, I guess, detaches and crashes into, like, um, Vir- Viridian 3. But um, mm. it doesn't really sort of have bits come off it or anything. It kind of, that, you know, you're a nitpicky sort of trekky when you think those sort of things, but that's probably why I didn't because <laughs> it just wasn't reflective of, you know, what happened to it particularly. Um, yeah. Cool gimmick, cool gimmick for a toy, but yeah, I want my stuff. And, and, and they were definitely kind of at that point where gimmicky, like, like they were going for gimmicks. Like I, yeah. I still, I mean, we're going way off topic now, but like Batman toys, you'd yes. have Batman, which would have all sorts of like, you'd have him in scuba diving gear, different colors, <laughs> you know, they'd just be like, yeah, that's it. You know, ones with a karate chop action and all this kind of stuff. There'd always be some gimmick and it's just like, no, I just want, I just want the default. I want it vanilla. And then I can imagine all the other things yeah. and kind of go from there yeah. rather than being forced into this one little gimmicky thing, you know? So that was, that was always a thing there. They, the, Playmates, though, they did come up with uh, the Enterprise E for first contact, and it was based on early design. So the nacelles, like the Bussard collectors, um, which are the, the red bits at the very front of the warp nacelles, are the wrong shape because that was based on original sketch work design that they did during pre-production before they kind of changed. But those, those were already set for Playmates, so... I think I, I weirdly picked that up quite a few years later, like when I was already like in my twenties. I think so. I remember picking that up because I thought, oh, I wonder if I wonder if I get some of those other playmate ships that I wanted because they were a cool way to get because they were pretty good, you know, for the most part, you know, despite obviously that mm. that would make mistakes. But um, if you didn't want a model kit, you wanted something a bit more robust. Um, but which was me as a kid, yeah, yeah, and have a good looking display piece. They still held up as pretty good, like. Um, items to have um and i think yeah i've got the um i've got the enterprise like the enterprise playmates enterprise b and for general mm. they made an enterprise b as well i think i sold it in in the end but i got it brand new off ebay again i was in, well into my 20s this isn't like when i was a little kid didn't know it was out when i was a little kid but i think i paid like not much i think 50 or 60 quid um i think i got it from the us actually imported and it looked really good. Well, again, it lit up and did some stuff. It had some battle damage on it, which was actually kind of accurate to what happens to it in the film. And I was just on display and like my, you know, where I was living at the time, um, it looked cool. But when we got to like the 2000s, so again, like this is when we were sort of hitting our 20s. And um, mm. the, by that point, like I think Art Asylum had got the rights to a lot of Star Trek um, to make Star Trek toys and, and sort of... Oh, are they... Yeah, I, I have some of their ships. They are absolutely gorgeous in design. They're beautiful, yeah. They're just as big as the Playmates ones, but with so much more detail. Yeah, it kind of took the, um, the... It was great because when I saw them, I was like, oh, wow, this is exactly what I wanted in terms of like a model kit, but I don't have to build it. <laughs> and it still looks really... <laughs> That's it. That's it. And they have lights and sounds and stuff. Yeah. It's, it's almost like the midway between... You've, you've got one end of the scale, you have like the AM team and Polar Lights model kits. And then on the other end of the scale, you've got the Playmates. And this is, it just kind of sits somewhere nicely in the middle. Yeah. You know, it's a perfect balance between the two. Yeah. And um, I got like, um, it must have been about 2005, six. I think it was the 25th anniversary of Star Trek two. So yeah, 2006, I think. Five. 2005, 2006. Um, and they did a, um, 
they did the reefer enterprise um and i thought god i've got to get that it's i mean it's, they're not quite as big as the uh, amt model kits. i think they're 22 inches for the enterprise this is like about 60 yeah it looks gorgeous it's got like a battle damage on it that's kind of accurate to the film lights up it's got really the aztecings on the hull it's painted beautifully it's just as good as like a, a really well put together model kit except it's a bit smaller but yeah, it looks great. I mean, the st- only thing annoying about it is the stands are, are, are terrible. They're, they're super flimsy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I kind of like that they have like the, um, a, a bit like Playmates did, they had like a, a stand that's kind of the shape of the, the Delta yes. insignia. Yeah. But they sit on a ball joint, which is great in some respects because you can adjust the angle that you want it to be displayed at, but they do not hold very well. There's a lot of weight on them and they will just shift and... Yeah eventually topple over uh, and that's a problem that i've had a couple of times absolute nightmare and they're a nightmare to get on and off oh god yeah yeah just separating them you feel like you're going to snap the thing in two exactly yeah which wasn't so because there was always uh that kind of with the playmates toys is that they had a panel that the stand was attached to which covered the battery pack yeah that's and right. you'd slide it off and then you'd have one that didn't have the stand attached you had two different ones and then you would just replace them. And I would just keep the the one that like is just the flat panel underneath the stand. Yeah. Um, or buy it somewhere. And uh, so you can switch it between a display and playing. Yeah. Yeah. There was no issues like wobbly or breaking. The Playmates ones were like rock solid. They were great. They were. Like for kids especially, like yeah. the amount of abuse that those could stand up to, especially when the Enterprise D, I mean, those Galaxy class ships, the way that they're designed... They're not supposed to look very structurally sound because yeah. it's supposed to be in space. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But yeah, they, those were rock solid. Yeah, um, and like the artists on them couldn't do that at all. I mean, there's some, I think there was someone on eBay that was selling like replacement stands, especially for Art Asylum. I need to get one because my that reefer enterprise that I've got um, that the stand broke years ago, and I haven't managed to be able to. I haven't got a, a replacement since. I really need to do it because it's just flat. It's just upside down um on top of my wardrobe i'm looking at it right now looking quite sad um <laughs> it's in good condition i mean actually it's good god it's like you know 12 15, 12 13 years old now uh, it still looks great um it's actually it literally broke the the, the top chunk of it broke of the, of the stand and it literally toppled it over but it didn't like snap the the, the ship is really strong it's still in, intact I've got other art asylum ones. They improved those stands later. I've got the Enterprise E and B and a, a bird, a Klingon bird of prey, and those stands are great. Um, I've had I haven't had a lot, like any problems with those at all. Um, so part of me's thinking maybe I'll just grab the. I mean, later on they they did the Enterprise A, which again is the nine identical to the Refit Enterprise. Just you know, I think they just painted mm. it slightly differently and just have battle damage, and it's obviously got one seven zero one A on it. Um, so I think that's still fairly readily available. Um, so yeah, I'm probably I might try and pick one of those up. But a lot of this stuff with Art Asylum, I think I, I have to sort of get it from the states. I'm not sure that's were super easily available. Although in saying that, I can get if I really want. I think if I get the um, Starships collection, I think they did like an Enterprise A, like in their larger scale. I don't know if that's the same. Thing. They did, yeah, they did an XL for yeah. it, but. Uh, I remember well, I was talking to one of my friends and he was saying how the XL version wasn't as good. The the paintwork, the design around the saucer uh, was completely wrong and inaccurate and things. So, oh, really? Um, whilst, yeah, whilst it is a larger model, 
just the smaller standard model was a lot more accurate. Yeah. In terms of how it looked, so there's uh, there's some XL models which the which Eagle Moss have done, uh, which are just fantastic. Quality and detail is just exactly what you would want, but the XL one just didn't live up to standard, sadly. Oh, so maybe I should work with that then. Yeah. Have you um have you ever seen the Metal Earth model kits as well? Yeah, aren't they literally like are they the ones that are like I'm going to open it actually now I have a look at them. I see you've ping ping me the link there. Yeah, um, I see them quite often in craft shops, but um, I, I've never seen a real one. I just see like obviously the, the box and um, are they actually really yeah. good? Although, I mean, they look good. I, yeah, I've I was sent some for over a couple of Christmases uh, for my mother. Um, so they're just a metal sheet, and you kind of pop out the pieces, which is a lot harder than it actually sounds. Um, I had to get tools specifically just to try and do this. And I got the Klingon Vorture class battlecruiser. Oh. And I've also got the Enterprise D and the original Enterprise. I've only built the Klingon one. And on their website, they list that as challenging. And yeah, that I would say it is. Uh, really? It takes a lot of patience. You, you haven't used pliers to bend metal uh, into certain shapes and hope to God that nothing snaps. Yeah. The stands are the same material, so it can be a little on the flimsy side. Um, but it was one of those things where I think I did it over the course of a, a week or two, just little bits here and there. And I was actually really satisfied with how it was uh, at the end of it. I mean, it's it's just metal origami, really. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking right, right now. Um, they've got the tier mm. endo, and which looks, obviously that's perfect for that sort of thing. It's, it is metal. So yeah, that's one that I'm yeah. looking at. That's cool. Yeah, the, the Enterprise D is marked as moderate, and I decided to go with the Vulture class because that looked to me like it, it didn't say that on the packaging, but the Vulture class looked easier in a way because I thought, how am I going to do like the saucer section? Yeah, and the fact that there's so many curves on the Enterprise D, but according to their website, that's supposed to be an easier one. So I think I'll do that before I go to the more challenging original series. Uh, enterprise which has to be because of the deflector dish yeah that's right more than likely you know so that, that's something that i'll do at some downtime when i i finally get some <laughs> but they, they are certainly an interesting alternative when it comes to model kits where there's no painting involved at all which is always good for people like us <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah I, I i mean i will always just look in awe at people who can paint models brilliantly that's just it's not me i i, I just haven't had the time or the training and uh, if I start now, then I might be good by the time I retire. Okay. But um, I almost feel like it's something that you're going to need to start earlier on in life to have that time to kind of get to that level. Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, it's never too late, but let's just, I'll probably stick to the art asylum ones, I think. Um, hopefully they'll keep them. <laughs> People like us can get those. Um, but talking of the Enterprise D, um, we actually to talk about an episode that ship is in don't we Al? what are we actually going to talk about uh, that would be the season two episode west silence has lease uh, season two episode two it is indeed that's a hell of a lot of twos it's two twos it's two twos indeed um two squared <laughs> maths two squared so we obviously just both of us you know watch the episode to recap and you know re jog our memories um i do remember we like watching it back in the day and um you know, watching it again, um, literally just before we came on there to do record the show. Um, it's a really good, good episode. I mean, 
Is it? What are your sort of thoughts on on it, Al? It it is good, though. It's a lot shorter than I remember. I mean, well, it's it's still the same length. It's still like a forty-five minute episode, but it feels like less happened than I recall. Yeah, and it's it's oddly one of the ones which I don't go back to very often, which is why it was actually quite enjoyable to go back to it again. Uh, but I mean, that's quite common with a lot of the season two episodes. Yeah, it's been. It's not generally season two. Well, it's um, there are. It, there are huge signs in it, I would say, that things are getting better. I mean, obviously, one is Riker's got a beard, which is obviously you know, <laughs> one of the greatest ever. Almost a necessity at that point. <laughs> yeah. Although, if you watch the previous episode, I mean, I don't want to talk about it too much, because I'm sure we'll talk about it in its own episode, but the previous episode. Mm, the uh, Child. The Child, yeah. Um, the, you, if you look at Riker then, you can see he's not. he hasn't had that beard long, because they've just come back from probably hiatus, and this is the first episode, of course. So he would have just grown that beard recently. And you can tell that there's kind of a half babyface Riker. Babyface Riker being obviously the first season Riker when he didn't have a beard. Um, although that would come back to scare everybody in Star Trek Insurrection, but that's for another um, episode. Um, <laughs> you see like a half babyface Riker and a half bearded uh, Riker. And you can kind of really see that because he hasn't, it just isn't as grown because beards take time to grow as, you know, both of us have beards and we know what that's like. Mm. In this one, he basically looks like he does for the rest of the series. Kind of an odd thing for me to notice, but yeah, that's one thing that I notice about this episode. It's the first time he looks like he would normally look. It's where, where, where the beard has come into its own. It's, it's finally reached that stage of development. Exactly, um, yeah. There, there is some interesting continuity from the child. Because even though Star Trek was episodic, they, they were trying their hand at continuity and, and things. At the very end, he mentions that they would be going to the Morgana Quadrant, and that's where this episode takes place. I didn't even catch, I didn't catch that. Yeah, which is a really neat continuity between the two, and uh, you know, and it's it's often overlooked that there was actually story arcs that they were putting into those early seasons. With it being all in syndication, it just never really kind of got the kind of level of attention that. Uh, latest shows like Deep Space Nine would go on to have. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't really touch touch upon things like. Um, I remember that there's certain like bits of Star Trek when they when they directly follow from another another episode, especially when it's episodes that aren't necessarily connected in a single story. That I really notice it. Like one example is um, the gift, which is the second episode of season four of Voyager. Um, mm. it literally directly carries on from, um, the previous episode, which is Scorpion part two, in the sense that it's you, you, the hot, the, the episode's teaser is literally seven of nine in her regeneration chamber, still as a fully as a Borg. Um, and they yeah. you know, they, they sort of wake her up, I think. And, 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 um, I can't remember exactly what, but again, there'll be, we'll, we'll do an episode on it. So I'll, I'll rewind that point. <laughs> Like, this is me rem remembering from like the last time I just watched it casually. Um, and I was like, oh, well, they actually sort of made a point of like following on from um, the last episode. Um, yeah, well, Brothers yeah. did the same after Best of Both Worlds in yeah. Next Generation. Yeah. yeah so th there were times when they would do that, but uh, it's, it's kind of neat seeing a lot of the undercurrents of things that were kind of being thrown in here and there in, in the first couple of seasons that you almost kind of forget about uh, as the show kind of goes on and leaves a lot of those threads behind. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think um, Next Generation, obviously, it, it is more of that traditional Star Trek format where it's <clears> individual <throat> like, like episodes. There might be some very faint, ongoing threads in the background, but nothing. <clears> you could dive in on it on any on, on. You could pick up any episode. You'll be able to watch it and enjoy it with no real prior knowledge of what might have happened. And in, in, mm. in the previous years, really, right? Yeah. It has a really weird opening, though, this episode. Quite random, isn't it? Quite random. Yeah, because Picard steps out of his ready room, and then it's as though he, he, he's... It's almost like going into a room and forgetting why you entered. So he's coming out of the ready room, going onto the bridge, and then he kind of stops and almost as though he's going to turn back into there. So it's kind of like, why did I step onto the bridge? Yeah. Which is just a really odd thing. And then... Troy just picks up that he's worried and concerned, yeah. you know, and he's saying, oh, you know, you know he's, he's worried about what's happening with Worf and Riker. And it appears that they're on a tropical planet, which yeah. we later find out isn't actually the case. It looks like a generic evil planet. Yeah, and they're, they're getting attacked by a couple of monsters. There's a giant armadillo that's got a giant gauntlet type glove and then there's also Skeletor <laughs> yeah. comes and attacks them yeah. as well. <laughs> well, you know, Michael Westmore did the Skeletor makeup in the Masters of the Universe movie. So he just redid that. Did he? Whatever dude was playing Skeletor <laughs> in that bit. Yeah, it was Michael well, Michael Westmore did the makeup on that film. I did not realize that he yeah. had done that. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Um and then after Worf has taken them both out, he's then got this bloodlust and goes after Riker. Before Riker goes, oh. okay, yeah. We need to end the simulation, and it's on the holodeck. Yeah, um, I, I don't think I was. I mean, I can't remember the very first time I saw it. To be honest, it was probably it might have been when it was on BBC. It might have actually been when it was on Sky. Like the last episode, I was telling you about how it was on every day on Sky. It was more likely then, to be honest, in the mid nineties um, when I probably first. Well, well, th yeah, well, this would have been ninety one for us. Uh, yeah. Nineteen eighty eight for for those of you in the US. You like and possibly other territories as well, but. Yeah, um, I don't think I was fooled by that scene. I think I knew they were on the holodeck because, well, I guess because we we knew Picard was knew about it. But then that kind of begs the question: What? So Picard knows they're doing a holodeck um, calisthenics thing, but um, mm. so why? So he's like worried about it. Is he worried of like like um, they'll just get the, like the safety's off? Like is he worried like Worf will cut that? That's it or something or. I don't, I, it's it's not clear as to why he's so concerned. Yeah. It really isn't. It's it's really just let's try and make it seem like they're in danger on some planet, and then that danger's gone. And there's no reference to it later on. No, there's no follow up to it. Just everything's okay, and they're just now going on to their next mission. It does like establish that Riker and Worf do have kind of a friendship. Um, mm. Does they do sort of touch upon? further down, further down the series. Um, and this is probably where the root of that begins. And maybe they're sort of foreshadowing Riker's interest in kind of Klingon culture and stuff, which sort of pays off yeah. right when he actually, you know, serves on a Klingon ship for a bit. But um, That's a good point, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that was the intention. I could, I could have completely made it. It might be. And, yeah. and, and I think it's also that... The character of Worf was really split between Worf and Tasha initially. So this is really Worf kind of coming more into his own for the first time, really. Um, yes. You know, you know, where he's now taking on the role of chief of security and, and it almost feels like they're just pushing that properly now. Quite quickly as well, when you think about it. Yeah. 
I mean, Tasha died, what, at this point, six episodes ago? Five episodes ago? In in the, mm. you know, list, when you look, look at the list of episodes. So, um, yeah, because I don't really recall at the end of season one, they make a big thing saying, he is now the security officer. He just kind of still hovers around the back there and is kind of a rotating group of people that, that man the sort of horseshoe station. Um, I think. Yeah. And then you've got this whole thing that, you know, obviously they're doing some kind of training scenario thing. There's there's no problem with the fact that he almost tried to attack a superior officer. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a pattern where if someone yells a Starfleet thing at him, then he kind of then he kind of calms down. I remember the very first episode yeah. of Next Generation <laughs> is like, uh, oh, we should totally separate the ship and, and escape. You know, that's I'm. And then. Um, and he says, uh, and he says, Worf, he tells Worf he's going to command the, uh, the, the, the saucer. So, uh, and he says, I'm a Klingon, sir. If I was to escape while, uh, seek escape while my captain goes to the bounty, and Picard just yells at him, you're a Starfleet officer, lieutenant. And then he just goes, oh, <laughs> yes, sir. So it's the same thing here where Riker just basically yells at him, doesn't he? And he calms down. Mm. Riker doesn't, like, to, to his credit, though, he doesn't, like, run off. He just sort of stands his ground and... You know, I think that probably creates some more respect for him in the eyes of Worf, I think. I don't know if that's what they're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Worf would definitely see that as a more honourable way of dealing with it and certainly a more respectful way of dealing with things. Yeah, exactly. So. And um, in a way, it's almost like they couldn't think of what they wanted to have as the the, the, the main storyline. They couldn't think of a good teaser before the credit. It also just seems like they're just trying to do the art of deception, which is what comes up continuously through this episode. So the antagonist does to the crew as the writers do to us. I mean, I mean, it is good, though. It is a good start. It's entertaining, for starters. I think it's a cool... It shows a bit of what Worf could be like, and it gives you a bit of depth to his character and their relationship. Yeah, it's good, but it, nothing, yeah, like, nothing to do with the episode, really, is it? Yeah. Yeah, and, th and there still hasn't been that much holodeck stuff no. yet at this point. So it's still... Yeah, they're still showing off this cool technology and things. Yeah. Um, but, but before we get to all of that, they, they start to go to investigate an intermittent area of blackness, you know, this, this hole in space. And I, I thought it was actually hilarious when Riker kind of points at the screen and goes, there it is. And they look and it's just the normal star field. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, there, there's, there's the blackness of space right there. Yeah. And it's like, you're like, <laughs> like you say, oh, well, that's just, that's just actual space. It's just, it is a void. Like, that's... Loads of like dots that are, that are sort of, Glistening against a black background. That's just space, dude. That's like. <laughs> but, we, but we do get to this kind of big amoeba like looking hole. Yeah. Um, you know, so they do end up showing it. it looks more like a cloud. Yeah. And, and I do love the fact that Data doesn't know what it is. And, and Picard's kind of questioning him. And he's just kind of like, you know, be able to discover knowledge is be able to start with pointing out, I do not know. Yeah. That worked really well, I thought. It makes for a slightly comedic sort of moment without trying too hard mm. to be comedic, but it's kind of selling that this is a really unusual thing that they've stumbled across quite strongly, I think, and made you curious as the viewer, you know, to see what the hell this thing is that they've, you know, they've encountered in space. Um, yeah. really and it's good that they don't just have something to just explain it away straight away. No. Uh, like oh we're picking up this we're picking up that it's like they, they don't pick up any energy readings there's no matter there's nothing they as far as they're concerned the only thing that shows that it's there is just their their eyesight exactly and then so you know they they, they launch um a probe into it and it just dies so that's like mm -hmm. 
the plot thickens. Yeah, and then <laughs> and then, then Worf recommends that they switch to yellow alert, and Picard just goes, why? Yeah. Explain. Really put him on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> and then they fire a second probe, and then Worf recommends that they fire a photon torpedo. It's just, yeah, it's just... And you've got all the tropes right there. You've got Picard shooting him down, yeah. wanting to go to, um, to, you know, go to the full light. Let's 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 try and destroy them. Um, and although Worf actually does say he's he had reason to to be, you know, let's let's get to yellow alert and be super cautious about it and defense, yeah, because he thought it, it reminded of a, of a Klingon legend of a black of a black like alien that can devour whole ships, and they just kind of look. at and they kind of go, oh, okay, yeah. That, I mean, there was an original series episode which had something like that, and they had, uh, was it the Voyager episode Bliss, I think, that had something similar going on as well? There was the actual so, Void, wasn't there? Where they went in, was it? Yeah. Yeah, when they went into a Void. There's a lot of Voids in Star Trek, I guess. Um, well, there's nothing scarier than a Void within a Void, so. That's a double Void, isn't it? Double, <laughs> void. void Squared. Void Squared again. That's a good name for an episode, that potentially. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah they obviously you know they launch the two probes they just disappear into nothingness so the plot sort of thickens um it actually reminded me a little bit of um there's elements of this episode in the cloud and also the phage of voyager yeah which is another thing where they go into some something and are really confused by what's by what's in it or encounter it and they can't really and they they when they go to investigate it stuff goes down um so i got shades mm. that having recently watched those two voyager um episodes though obviously they came after this episode but yeah there was sort of shades of, of of that um and i think they just um they kind of go they kind of creep up on it a bit more don't they they kind of try to sort of get a bit closer to it mm. and then, then this is when we get to the point that made me hate pulaski as a kid because this was her second episode of course, so she'd already yeah. been in once. Yeah. But one of the characters that I loved most and respected the most as a kid was Data. Oh, yeah. And she is a bitch to Data. Yeah. She just does, you know, she, I mean, to, to her credit, she does acknowledge that she's wrong and that she is struggling to try and come to terms with the fact that he is classified as a living thing. Slightly grudge. I have to say, which is a lot. Yeah. 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 It, but it, it's kind of like if we were to parallel to modern day, it's kind of like how we have different pronouns and, you know, people who are very stuck on, you know, finding it difficult to transition to the fact that people have pronouns other than he or she, you know, the, yeah. the, the other ones as well. Yeah. And, it's almost kind of like that difficulty there. So Stubborn. it's one of those things where it yeah. does resonate a little bit more today, I think, than it perhaps did then. But just how dismissive she is of Data, uh, talking about him in the third person whilst he's there, you know, I, I just, that really put me off her character yeah. when I was a, a kid. I don't know what the point of writing, writing her like that is. I mean, um, no. I also think this is the 24th century. People would be pretty chilled out about things that aren't just a human you know, so mm. why isn't she like that with Warp? Yeah. You know, a robot. It's a robot thing seems to have. Yeah. And and you want a new character to be liked, and they introduce this new character, and she is not likable at all in that regard. They're not setting her up to be liked, are they really, with that sort of attitude? No. No. 
But Data does have this brilliant idea of leaving a beacon behind. I thought that was pretty cool. And you even see Riker kind of just slightly out of focus behind Picard, kind of uh, just smiling, kind of like, that's actually a really neat idea, Data. Um, where they just leave this beacon so they can figure out how far away that they've gone from it to give them a point of reference in this void. So, so at this point, they've actually, they're in there, aren't, aren't they? It's like envelop them. Yeah, and they're trying to escape, and they yeah. just have no way of knowing that they're even moving. Yeah. So we'll put a beacon behind us, and then we'll know that we're moving because we've got a reference point that then appears directly in front of them. Yes, and it's just... You, at this point, you have no, as like a viewer, especially if you're watching it the first time, you've got no idea what this thing is. It's just really good. The suspense is built up nicely. It's not doing anything super blatant or it's just really subtle and slow. And I, I think that's, that's mm. really well. And everyone's just baffled. There's, you know, they can't scan it. They can't do anything. All of this, you know, technology isn't really helping them at all. They're down to basically just looking at stuff with their own eyes. Mm. <laughs> And that's really cool. And and then the first thing that they are able to detect is a vessel decloaking and it's a giant Romulan warbird appearing in front of them. Yes. And I, I think you'll probably agree that on a first watch through, you think, okay, maybe the Romulans do have, that either the Romulans have something to do with this or they are caught up in it as well. It's a really... But either way, yeah. you're kind of... Yeah. yeah. But otherwise, you're kind of like, oh no, we're, we're in trouble. But they're destroyed with a single photon torpedo and there's no debris. And so you very quickly click in with, okay, so this is something else that's going on here. Yeah, and what's hilarious about that is, like, they, they, they fire one photon torpedo and it blows up. And then, like, Geordie goes like, yeah. Like, like <laughs> that, 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 was, that was clearly going to happen because we're just really cool. You know? Like, <laughs> very, very, very satisfied. Flag, you'd be like, that clearly shouldn't have happened. You know, there's something going on. But but Geordie was happy to accept that we they were just badasses and just yeah. a wrong elbow with one torpedo. <laughs> yeah. And, and he's he's still spending a lot of time on the bridge because obviously he was a bridge officer before becoming chief engineer. Yes. And here he is, chief engineer, but he's, he's still taking a station at the back of the bridge. There's a lot of... Most of this episode is filmed on the bridge. Yeah, nearly the whole thing and a couple of corridors and transporter room, really, yeah. Uh, I, and, and there's another vessel that's just about to appear at this point. And we, I think we see more of the other vessels interior than we do of and the Enterprise. Yeah, which is funny because, well, the ship that turns up, although initially what you see is a Galaxy-class starship. And I'm like, oh my God, is this another Enterprise? Um and I think probably the first time I saw the, the episode, I think that's probably what I thought. And then obviously, you know, we know that there are other galaxy class starships. I think like I've got the Star Trek mm -hmm. Generation technical manual and it goes into detail about that. I think there's like six of them or something were made initially. Um, there's Enterprise, obviously, and there's the USS Galaxy because the ship is not the class of ship is named after the first ship they build. Yeah. Um, so there was a USS Galaxy that was built that's the oh, slightly older than the Enterprise, and the whole class became the, the, the Galaxy class. I think the Enterprise was either the second or the third one built. Yeah, the Yamato was the, uh, the sister ship. Yes. With a very interesting registry as well. That's complete. Because yeah, it, was it gets ruined like when we know what, the, what the, the convention is later on for that, yeah. What is it? Well, not really. It's not really ruined, but it's just it's the NCC one three zero five E, which means there have been a lot of USS Yamatos yeah. at this point. Yeah, you know. I mean, granted, we're on the, the Enterprise D, so it's only one more. But you know that there's been quite a lot of Yamatos. 
I say your mato and you say your mato. <laughs> and it appears again, funnily enough, um, later on. So this isn't the last time we see it. Although, no, the, the, this is more interesting at this point, isn't it? Yeah, and and at this point, the bridge is identical to the Enterprise's bridge, whereas it's slightly different in the next episode we see it. But that's perfectly reasonable because this is an illusion that's been created based on the Enterprise. So it kind of makes sense that as an illusion that it would have the exact same bridge and there aren't the differences that we see later on. And I think at this point, like Troy has kind of established that there is some kind of consciousness going on in the background here, manipulating things. So they're a little bit Mm. more clued up as to what they're up against. But the the Amato has turned up um, and they obviously go over to it to see if they know what's going on because they can't pick up any life signs. Um, but a, a funny, a kind of significant thing is they also go to the transporter room, and um, Chief O'Brien's the the uh, the transporter chief. Now, I can't remember if that's I think maybe the previous episode, the first season, the episode of season two is the first time we see him as the transporter chief. But I don't think he's got a name yet. They don't mention. Do they say O'Brien in this episode? I think they do. Don't don't they? Oh, I think yeah. I, I'm pretty sure they call him O'Brien. He doesn't have Miles. No. As his name yet. That comes in later. But yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that he is known as... as um, but Although he's, he's known as lieutenant in this one. They hadn't quite got the enlisted rank sorted for him. This is one of those uh, ones where they call him Lieutenant O'Brien. That's this whole saga, isn't it? Where his rank goes yeah, down with, throughout the years. Yeah, yeah, he's like an ensign, then he's a lieutenant, and then yeah. he's... Yeah, I yeah. think he goes back down to Ensign again at some point. He gets a demotion, <laughs> and then he's not even ever been enlisted. He's just a chief petty officer. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that is a whole thing on his own. <laughs> poor, poor Harry Kim, you know, doesn't budge from Ensign, like, his whole career on, on, on Voyager. And... <laughs> They're just dishing out ranks to O'Brien. Yeah, Chief O'Brien like <laughs> bouncing around, but it's not. It's not the. Um, he appeared in season one. He's in the very first episode of Next Generation. Um, yeah, and he's in um, the episode Lonely Among Us, um, and he might be in another one. But at least, yeah, this was this was definitely his fourth episode. Yes, it's, a, it's yeah. his fourth at least. I think it probably is his fourth actually. So. Yeah, because yeah, it was Lonely Among Us. And then he was in The Child. He was in the one just before. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I think so, transported. Yeah. Uh, but there'll be a bit of a, there was still a bit of a merry go round. Like there's one episode where Terry Hatcher, like literally Lois Lane and in What's Her Name, mm. Housewives, is, is, a, is a transporter chief, which I completely forgot about until I saw it like, a few <laughs> years ago. I was like, Terry Hatcher was in Star Trek. Holy crap. Um, yeah. So yeah. there's a bit of a merry go round until. Um, Chief O'Brien, like still pretty much nearly always Chief O'Brien from this point on. Um, but yeah, so we get we get Chief O'Brien, which is cool. Uh, we all love Chief O'Brien, and yeah, they beam over. But um, it, again, the great thing about a show like this is, you know, it's, it's 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 basically a bottle show, but it doesn't feel like it, does it? Even though it is just takes place on the Enterprise, really, and special effects. I mean, if anything, it it uses the nature of it being a bottle show to its advantage because yeah. they are kind of trapped and and stuff. And and it really, especially this early on in the show, there's just brilliant. Just and this is just before they go down to the transport room. There's just this brilliant back and forth between Picard and Riker, and you really get this sort of sense that they are completely gelled together in terms of uh, supporting each other on the ship. Yeah, 
you really feel like this is a well-oiled machine, don't you? You can tell why they yeah. were chosen to be the command crew of the flagship of you know Starfleet um, because they can just problem solve. Like there's no arguing. They just really sort of or like um, you just you you just trust in their ability to work their way out of stuff and work stuff out. You can just feel it from yeah. the way they act. The acting is just great, even in a <laughs> like this. Where nothing much ha- well, quite, I wouldn't say nothing much happens, but there's no big battles or anything or huge drama. Mm. It's a really cool, self-contained show. Yeah, there's those silly moments every now and then, but everything else is just top-notch. Yeah, and we have Riker and Worf beaming aboard, and again, you feel there's that sense of trust there that they'll just go in, like, and separate off into their own different uh, uh, directions, and then they both come running after each other. Like Worf is coming to try and save Riker because he hears Riker scream, but we blatantly, with Riker, hear Worf scream. It's you know, a great and, moment, uh, uh, when just as they yeah. beam over, actually, I nearly forgot about um, where, like, um, Worf says, "Oh, I thought the best plan will be to, to to surprise them and beam to the beam to the back and end of the bridge or the aft like left like turbo lift or something." Um, mm-hmm. And Riker's like, um, "You're assuming they they're like hostile. We don't even we're not picking up any life signs." And Worf just says, well, the tactic is still sound. And he was and right, yeah. was like, yes, you're right. <laughs> so that's one <laughs> of let's do kind of action type stuff that might not be necessary that Worf suggests actually is a good idea. <laughs> and they acknowledge that. Yeah. And when they get onto the bridge, one of the things that I thought was really clever was that if you listen, because you've got the bridge ambient noise that we're all very used to. Back then... We probably weren't as used to it. Now we've watched this so many times, it's yeah. kind of ingrained there, that it becomes really noticeable that the Yamato's bridge noise is so different. There's kind of this weird um, sort of tweaking to the sound, and it just sounds a little distorted. So it, it just gives you that sense of, this isn't comfortable. This, there is something weird about this place, even before you see that there's another bridge through the, the, you know, the conference room door. And the way it's lit as well, um, like the corridor yeah. walk down when they hear the screams that um, that you mentioned. Um, it's very dark, lots of shadows. None of the panels are lit or anything, so you already get a sense of this is just really weird. And then when they when they go on the bridge again, the eeriness with I think it's lit a lot darker. Obviously, it's just the Enterprise. You know, I mean, you, you can, they can get away with it because the Yamato is a galaxy class ship, so it's obviously everything looks the same. It's funny because watching it in HD, which I did on, on Netflix. Um, I actually saw there's a scene where you could just about see the dedication plaque and I was actually going to, mm. I, I didn't do this, but I was going to, God, I could probably pause it and I could see if they've actually bothered to replace it because my temptation is to say is they probably didn't because uh, they didn't think anybody yeah. would see it. I could be wrong. They might have done um, actually, but yeah. And the, and this is the thing about this episode uh, because if it was still the Yamato, um but had the Enterprise plaque, you could still get away with saying, yeah. oh, well, it's part of the illusion because it's yeah. just a carbon copy of the bridge. You could get away with it. It would create more creepiness and add to the mystery, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and obviously not something that they themselves would be looking out for. So it would, it would perfectly work, even if that was the case, just because it is an illusion. And there is, like, um, we kind of mentioned that the teaser um, felt like it didn't really fit with the rest of the episode, but the payoff, and it kind of makes sense now, we're reviewing it and we can look back. Um, it's You kind of get the payoff, or at least you get a foreshadowing in the teaser where 
well, um, Worf basically loses it. Um, he gets super confused about, you know, the, there's well, the, the moment where he, that he really loses it is when they're walking down that corridor um, and they're saying, we need to get to the bridge, we need to find it, we need to get to a turbo lift. But when they open the turbo lift doors, they just go straight into the bridge, which obviously confuses the hell out of them. Like, this should be four decks above us. And then when they open hmm. another door, that just goes on, on the other side of the bridge, which should lead to like a conference lounge or something. Um, hmm. I think it probably would have been the conference lounge. Um, they just end up going to another bridge. <laughs> I, I love it when Vikas came saying, so where do we end up if we go through that door? Yeah. And Wolf just looks at him and just goes, we'd be on the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> just very mad of a fact. Yeah. It's like, I see a bridge there. We would be on the bridge. And he's not wrong. <laughs> No. I would be on the bridge. No. But the door's about to close on him as he's trying to walk onto one this other random bridge that's next to the actual bridge or whatever it is. And he sort of grabs the doors and tries to force them open while they're trying to close on him. And he starts yelling, sort of clicking on expletives. And so the payoff from the teaser happens right here where um, Riker tells him to pull himself together because he's kind of losing it a bit. And then he eventually does. And then he sort of growls at Riker again like he did in the teaser. But he sort of says to himself, at ease, Lieutenant, at ease, and walk that to himself. He sort of mutters that to himself and walks off. So that's really the point of the teaser was to kind of foreshadow that moment. Um, and that's mm. where the payoff where Maybe you see that he's learning self-control and, and, and stuff. It, it, it is just the very first underpinnings of Wolf, really. You know, where you really... Uh, I mean, I say underpinnings. Like we've had a season with him already. But this this feels more... Like he's not so much a background character that we're starting to get some characterization out of him more this season. Yeah, because it would have been Tashi R that would have gone with Riker on, you know, on that. Well, it's just that it was just a very small. Yeah, is M two. But here's one thing because I'm I'm trying to remember back and I don't think I can. But Picard is really concerned about their safety when they're on the holodeck. I don't recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't recall him being at all worried about Riker and Worf being on this magical ship that's just appeared. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, and presumably the safeties are on, unless, you know, like, like I said, we're, we're confused about why he's so concerned about them being on, on, on the holodeck. It wasn't, it, it's, it, it's, it made for an interesting little moment with Picard, and it's kind of nice in a way that you see how he's concerned for his crew. But it's kind mm. of a bit of a funny way to start. But yeah, he doesn't seem to care in the same way. It would make more sense if Picard was still a little bit worried with them being over there on the other ship. Yeah. Whereas he doesn't seem to still have that kind of worry there. And there wasn't anything to reassure him so that he wouldn't be as nervous at this point. It's almost like we're just missing a little bit from it. Uh, but this is where we end up with our antagonist appearing. And I know that when you and I first met, I think that uh, that this character is probably one of the people that you started bringing up quite a lot at the time. Just a reference that this loads because it's just so like random. I mean, it starts off with a very sort of weird game of cat and mouse, isn't it? Mm. At that point in time, there's a new random like basically a red shirt has appeared on the bridge. He's literally a red shirt as well. Ensign Haskell. Yeah, Ensign Haskell, um, and he's there because obviously that's. Where is Wesley Crusher, actually? He doesn't go anywhere, does he? Why isn't Wesley there? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd say that he's maybe off duty, but everybody else is on the same duty shift with him. Yeah. Um, but well, yeah, he's, oh, he's there why. for a little bit. He's, he's there at the end of the episode, but oh, yeah. And, I know what. Is he? We'll see what. Was he there at the beginning of the episode? 
No, it was a crusher. It was there at the beginning, but they've they've had to very 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 um, blatantly put this red shirt there because um, he's basically there for the reason why you have red shirts in Star Trek. Um, so well, as we will see, but um, yeah, so they lose they start losing contact with the away team as well at this time. Uh, but and while hmm. that's happening, um, a gap in the in this big cloud that they've been sucked into opens up, so they could actually escape through that and they'll be able to leave. But Picard doesn't want to go because he wants, you know, he's concerned about, um, at this point, he gets really concerned about the awaiting and they're losing contact. And But this Haskell, he's really eager just to cut and go. He's just like, oh, screw the awaiting. Look, we can go. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, but sir, we can get out. And Picard's like, no, we're going to wait for the free and awaiting. What are you, come on. <laughs> and then a giant face appears. And then the giant face appears. It is Nagilum. Yeah. It's a very creepy kind of like, we're just kind of, We've got this mouth. We've got these big eyes that are kind of stretched and distorted. It's like a distorted giant face, isn't it? That's sort of part of the background <laughs> of the cloud or nebula-like. Or as Jordy describes when they said that it, there's just nothing there, and he goes, "There's a big, ugly nothing." Yeah, yeah. he's good for that <laughs> in this episode. Like he sort of does a funny, like, "Yeah, got you," and they blow up the Romulan warbird, and this he like does a funny little comment. He does a comment about the the rat and the cheese, and saying, "You know, you can keep the cheese." I'll just, uh, just get me out of the maze. Yeah. Yeah. So he's great for those little quips. Like, like, uh, is that yeah. why he's there? It doesn't really do much. In fact, it doesn't really contribute anything apart from to tell them that they're at war, really, which is kind of. Yeah. And then, and then we have this thing where Nagilam knows all the crew's names, which is starting to freak people out the more that he kind of goes through the list. Yeah. He just announces them. Yeah. Yeah. And then he identifies Pulaski as being different to all the rest when. You know, and then it's made clear that that she's a female. Yeah. And Troy is stood there. There's no reference to the fact that, like, okay, we've got two people who are different. It's yeah. just like, oh, Pulaski, you're different to everybody else in the room, including Troy. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, pretty sure Troy's a female, you know? Um, <laughs> could be wrong, but... Um, and yeah, he kind of Nagilum, so he appears, and he sort of, we now we can see all this, now we know. There's a force behind all mm. of these weird like occurrences and having the Enterprise trapped. And it's this giant face called Nagilum. Um, and, I mean, you could almost like, you know, at this point, maybe you might have suspected it could have been Q, you know, that was doing this sort of thing. Because he would have, you know, he liked to mess around with the Enterprise crew. I mean, only been mm. two episodes at this point. Uh, the first, the, like the fifth episode, or no, it's more than like, the eighth episode, isn't it, when he comes back. Uh, yeah, this is very far on into the episode at this point, though. Yes. Uh, and Q likes people to know that he's the one messing with them. He'll play around for a little bit, and then he wants them to know. Whereas this has been quite a long time of just just these weird things happening. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I think, yeah, you're probably right. I think it, he would appear fairly quickly to, you know, do stuff in person. But, yeah. Nick, he... Once he's also discovered about the existence of females and that... Uh, that males and females propagate for the the expansion of the species. Big time. Uh, he asks for a demonstration from Pulaski, mm. and she's like, "I absolutely will not." Understandably, not likely. <laughs> yeah, leaves her words. Yeah, <laughs> not likely. <laughs> so again, that's another kind of funny. Um, you know, I don't know if it's supposed to be funny or not. Moment, but it kind of a dark comedy moment, isn't it? I think would be the way you describe that. Um, I mean, he's only got yeah. to go look at the... I mean, if you're that powerful, dude, go and just look at the, the computers. 
you know, the library yeah. computers on, on, on the Enterprise. And then, you know, you, you can read about, I'm sure there's plenty of, like, there's plenty of ho- ho- holodeck uh, <laughs> programs. Just, just, just replay every holodeck program that Riker has, has used. Oh, yeah. You know, we know, we, we know. that would be enough there. Uh, maybe some of those Wolf as well. We don't know, but... <laughs> <laughs> and, and, of course, he's, um, he's immortal, so yeah, he then takes interest in what mortality is like. So that's when he's like, you exist, and then you cease to exist. And he proves this by killing Ensign Haskell. So, yeah. Haskell kind of curls up into a ball and dies. Which is, yeah, I mean, he's sort of like, he, it looks like he's having, I wouldn't even say it's a fit, he just sort of like, looks like he's, looks like he's listening to some really loud music that's really irritating him, and it gets louder and louder. And then, um, mm-hmm. he's, yeah, he sort of falls off his chair and, and he just dies, and basically it's clear, you know, so they couldn't have Wesley do that, so they had to put this no-name, well, he had a name, at least. <laughs> so they had to put this guy, this poor guy, you know, who was just happily getting on, you know, with his uh, Starfleet duty. Um, and, um, yeah, Nagilam sort of sacrifices him so we can see what it's like for, for someone to die. Yeah, and then says that the experiment is likely to take a third of the crew, maybe even a half. Yeah. To which, obviously, Picard isn't happy with this, uh, decides to self-destruct the ship. And then there's, there's this interesting question from the computer. When, uh, when he and Riker are down in engineering, the computer asks for the time interval. And he's like, huh, well, how, 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 how long to prepare to die? Turns out the answer is 20 minutes. <laughs> 20 minutes is how long is the, the right amount of time to prepare to die. Yeah, they don't really debate. It's not much of a debate. So Riker just throws that out there. Yeah, 20 minutes. Or, and God just... Yeah. <laughs> enough time for this, enough time for that. 20 minutes. It's a nice balance between the two. Would you think like a self... Like we've had a self-destruct of some kind numerous times, but now, I mean, the Enterprise, the next generation, I think it happened once before in um, the first season. And obviously mm. Star Trek Three, of course. And I think uh, there was... Uh, was it... Let let that be your last battlefield on TOS um, was the episode where mm. they set the self destruct on the original Enterprise. Um, so yeah, so it happens quite a lot in Star Trek. This is the second time it's happened, but yeah, it's it's uh, it, it really raises the stakes because obviously Nagilam threatens he wants to learn more about death, so he says I'm going to kill a third of your crew, um, and um, you know they they try to work out what what how what can they do to get out of this situation all of them are fairly resigned to sort of say well i think we're screwed here guys but picard says no there's one option and they're like oh what And he's like well I'd blow up the ship <laughs> and, and then he uses his 20 minutes yeah. to, to like just go back to his quarters and i had to look this up because uh, i was curious what the music was that he was listening to and it's by a french composer called eric sati so i kind of like that they right. they chose a, a, a french piece of music which was very fitting uh, but he's in there, and then Troy comes in to to tell him that he's wrong, which is a little bit more tactful than Lily was in First Contact. You know, yeah. um, <laughs> when she was trying to encourage him to blow up the ship, he got <laughs> Troy very calmly saying, don't blow up the ship, that's wrong. Uh, and then Data comes in, and I, I just love how he's just like, what is death? <laughs> because like, oh, is that all? Very unsubtle. <laughs> yeah, and then we get into this whole kind of, you know, well, it's the, this two philosophies, there's heaven or there's nothingness. And, yeah. and Dave's asking, well, what do you believe? And he says, well, I, I believe it should be something that's greater than both philosophies. And we were talking last week with Threshold 
that they were trying to make it sound smart by saying like the past is the future and the future is the past and it was just nonsense. This is actually very smartly written. Yeah. This this is actually proper intelligent stuff and uh, and Picard doing what Picard does best which is talking about philosophy uh, and and things which data always gave the the perfect opportunity to do. Although we then find that this isn't actually data, that Troy and data are just Nagilam's own manifestations at this point. Yeah, it's it's interesting, actually, the way they do that, because obviously Picard, like you say, very eloquently explains, you know, the various philosophies and things that might happen, you know, when, when you die. Obviously, we know that no, no, no one's any the wiser in the 24th century about that. But when, when he's doing hmm. that, it does cut to Troy a couple of times, and Troy has a very vacant look on her face. So they're obviously trying to, mm. off, you know, show that this isn't the real Troy. It's like a facsimile or whatever it is. So it, I think even when the first time you watch it, you did, that does make you think, mm, it's a bit weird. She's looking very, she's not looking very like Troy-ish, which is, you know, quite quite caring and nice and a bit mm. emotive, you know, without necessarily just in her face. She's got that, you know, an emotive face and, you know, um, but very ro- robotic. She, like, like cut to her a couple of times, and she's very robotic looking. And so's well, Data is a robot, but yeah, even he shows emotion in, um, in his face. So you you can already feel a weirdness about the situation. And Picard mm. wigs straight away that they're both uh, some kind of facsimile that Nagilim has created to try and get Picard to turn off the self destruct. And Picard works it out because he's obviously a bit of a legend. Um, and it's, like, <laughs> it's not going to work, Nagilam. And they just kind of vanish. They kind of disappear. Um, it doesn't make you think like, so everybody's still on the bridge. Did Picard say when they set the social, oh, I'm just going to sit in my room and read a book. Are you guys all right? Listen to music. Things? Yeah. Only 20 minutes. Dead, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so that will kind of cross my mind. No, normally you think that he would be on the bridge, you know, yeah. as a final thing, you know. Because there's, there's a good example of that um, in the Voyager episode Deadlock, where yes. um, one of the two Voyagers, um, the, the, yeah, the, there's two Voyagers in this episode, people don't know about it. Um, one of the two Voyagers has to set a self-destruct before it gets over, taken over by the um, Vidians, um, who go around trying to steal everyone's organs. And they set a self-destruct, and um, when the Vidians get to the bridge, they, they can see that there's a countdown. Um, and and Captain Janeway very calmly welcomes them to to the bridge, and they're all just sitting in their positions waiting for the clock to go down, and it does, and the <laughs> duplicate Voyager blows up. Just ruined that episode for people. Sorry. Um, hey, it's been out years. Tough. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that that shows that probably everybody's just going to hang out on the bridge, and you know, I don't know. It's kind of a weird scenario, right? Um, but yeah, that 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 crossed my mind. That was kind of a funny one. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. He, Goes back to the bridge, doesn't he? he? Gets told that they're out of the this big cloud thing. Everything's mm. fine now. And, and what's kind of neat is that they've got the red alert is going, and this is, to my knowledge, I, I might be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure that this is the first time they had the red alert lights blinking. They used to always just be stationary on. Oh, um, really? You would see that even in movies like um, like Star Trek Three. Uh, you yeah. would have just on the bridge, it would just be like a solid red light. Yeah. But this was the first episode where they had them blinking, and then from that point on, they would be blinking all throughout. Uh, and if, another, probably the final um, interesting fact about this episode, the, char- the character Nagilam, the voice of Nagilam, is a chap called Earl Bowen. And um, you'll probably know Earl Bowen as Dr. Silberman 
from Terminator from the Terminator films. Uh, the the Doctor that you know we mainly know as keeping Sarah Connor in an, an insane asylum. Yeah, you messaged me about that the other day, yeah. and I I did not know this yeah. at all until you mentioned it. So when I was rewatching it, it's just kind of like it's it's actually really. Uh, I mean, maybe it's a bit of a stereotype for him now, um, yeah, but exactly. it's almost fitting. Just the way that he talks to the crew is very similar to how he kind of talks down to Sarah Connor. He's very good in this episode as well, actually. That like Nagila is very mm. creepy. He's not being over the top with it or putting on a really dramatic evil voice. Just a very creepy, yeah. like doesn't care voice. It's yeah, it's it's nothing about ego like you would get with Q. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. You know, he's he's just trying to conduct an experiment and he, he deems humanity then to be too hostile and too aggressive and that there's not enough in common to really pursue anything further. Uh, but at least acknowledges to Picard that uh, when Picard mentions that they have curiosity in common, he's like, okay, well, you do at least have have a point there. You know, and it, 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 it does come across as a scientist, um, but just without the compassion there. Well, just before we get to that very final bit, it does actually end quite... There is a quite a bit of tension because the self-destruct is still on um, and Picard gets back to the bridge. Um, he hasn't turned yeah. it off. And so they're literally all on the bridge and um, I think Picard says, just go to warp six, like any any he- heading. Um, and they go to warp and Picard just is like... Um, it, basically, he's not convinced that Nagilam has let them go. He thinks that this is a, this is an illusion as well, um, and he literally let. And everyone's just looking at him like, "Turn off the friggin' the self destruct. We're all good." And Riker's literally like, "Captain, look, I think we're clear. Can we turn it off now?" And Picard's just like, "No, just wait, just wait." And and the clock literally runs to about the last six or five or six seconds, and then he says. Mm. And then he just very, very abruptly says, um, computer, um, terminate self-destruct. Yeah, so the, the, the computer asks Riker to confirm. And yeah. so Riker's like, yes, absolutely, you know. Wholeheartedly. Unequivocally. And, and the guy just looks at him going, a simple yes would have sufficed, number one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another really great like, dark comedy-like mo- moment. Um, mm. Yeah, and um, so, yeah, the self-destruct's turned off, and as you, as you, you say, um, he goes into his ready room. But it ends very abruptly, like, he's just like, yep, cool, that's it, all good now. Um, you know, they could have easily been zapped back into that thing as soon as he flipped off the, the self-destruct. But anyway, he goes back into his ready room, and Nagilam talks to him through his um, laptop, um, which is kind of an interesting mm-hmm. way. Um, it did make me notice, though, watching it in HD, I kind of feel like the Nagilam effect isn't as good as it was in the original. Um, I don't know why, but if you look at the HD version versus the original, his mouth is really like doesn't move much. I don't know if they really struggle yeah. to break the effect. But in the in the sort of original, it was kind of a, like almost like a human mouth that kind of moved normally. But in the HD version, very like rigid sort of thing. Yeah, and it does seem like they were trying to do CGI with this, like with yeah. the way that everything was distorted and stuff. And so it was certainly very early on in that, and it it they definitely made the effect. For television, for low resolution, and yeah, so when yeah. it got scaled up, I think you really see the, the limitations because of what they were producing it for at the time. And it's it's one of the few effects that doesn't hold up. Plus, to to the credit of the people who made the show back then, um, the team that did the HD remastering was a different team for season two. Oh, so oh. the colors. Yeah, the colors aren't quite as good. The HD remastering wasn't as good. 
And then for season three, they got the original team who did season one back involved. And oh. so that's why those are just really good. But yeah, season two has a much darker visual tone and just is because it's a different company doing oh, it. Like, yeah. And they didn't do as good of a job. The color grading is close yeah. to the original. Oh, cool. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think that was good. Um, but yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things where I thought it was a great premise. Uh, I yes. thought it did feel like fall short at the end. Because um, there, there wasn't much Nagilum in it uh, compared oh. to other entities that have done similar things uh, in later shows. I feel that they could have done with more time. I think the 45 minutes really limited it because the pacing was great. As you were saying before, like it's all slowly building up. And I think the pacing is good, but they just run out of time. But I don't know if there's enough there for it to have been a two-parter. I no. think that would have been too long for it. It's probably about right. I mean, like Nagilam shows up like when there's probably about 15 minutes left. Um, That's it, yeah. You have the one big scene when he shows up initially and tells, says everyone's name and tells Pulaski to have sex and all that stuff. And that's basically it until like the end, really. Yeah, when he shows up on the laptop. Yeah, you, you kind of get the answer as to who's doing this, but you don't really get to learn much about him. No. You know, and you don't get to learn more the motivations. I, I think that you get, uh, there was a much better job done in other uh, episodes like Voyager's Scientific Method, oh, yeah. where that again is the crew under an experiment. Similar ending, well. Yeah, but you do get to find out more the motivations behind the people who are, are doing this. I do wonder if they put Nagilim in earlier, would it have ruined the pacing more? I would probably say um, Scientific Method is a better version of this episode than this one is. Yeah. Um, because like the the, the Nagilim and antagonist character are people that they can actually talk to uh, and are still mm. fairly creepy and, very, and also completely don't care. Um, so I would say, it feels more invasive as well in scientific method. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and potentially just as deadly, um, as well, but in a much mm. slower way, which is, so I would say that it succeeds a bit better. That's not to take anything away from this episode. Cause this did it first. Mm. Maybe that, I don't yeah. know if, um, if I read the Star Trek Voyager companion, I've got that as well. Maybe they'll reference where silence is least as being like an inspiration, but yeah. And probably the ending is done a bit. <laughs> It, it was a different writer and director. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I don't know if, the, but certainly it's one of those ones you would kind of look back and potentially be inspired by it. Yeah. Sure. And I think I think probably the way that Jane Way, instead of just setting the self destruct, which you probably could have done in that episode, really, um, she flies it towards like a pulsar or something and threatens to blow it up that way. Um, mm. um, yeah. But I don't know. Like the self destruct, I think probably works better in this episode because of the way Picard leaves it. Till the last few seconds. Um, I mean, Joan Way does that in Scientific Method, but it's like, it's just an, a countdown, which is kind of creepier to me than just a, them blowing up from getting too hot. But yeah. And, um, and I, I like that you, you almost get the sense of danger from Riker because he doesn't give this kind of feeling of like, oh, I knew we were going to be okay. You can tell that he was like, oh, we're going through with this. This is, this is something that will more than likely happen. And he is so relieved when it's done. But at yeah. the same time, he doesn't counteract those orders, which we know that that's the whole thing, that you, you wouldn't do that you know, publicly on the bridge. No. You know, that's yeah. something that you would only ever have a conversation with in Picard's ready room in private. But at no point does he disagree with Picard's order. 
And that's kind of when like Wesley touches upon it in a way, doesn't he? When he says to Riker, like, wow, he really held out that bluff till the last second. And Riker was like, was he, was he bluffing? And dated his yeah. look, like, bloody hell. Yeah. Good point. Um, <laughs> like, like you said, like how the whole crew is just a well-oiled machine. They obviously Riker did strongly suggest to him, like, can we turn off the self-destruct to think we're okay? He didn't really lose his call or was like, ah, oh, we're going to die. And no one did. Um, it just shows how what a brilliant crew they are, and they are they. You just you would just trust them with everything. You you, you trust them as a viewer to, to do the right thing because they're that good. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that episode, I give it a big thumbs up. Um, I mean, what 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 would you thumbs up, thumbs down for you? Uh, thumbs up, yeah. No, I I, I do. I, I do really like it. Yeah, certainly some quirky bits here and there, um, but overall, very, very strong, especially for season two. One of the best episodes so far to, up to that point, I would say, actually, when you've got season one, it, it's... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, season two ended up in a writer's strike and they were started to reuse scripts from the aborted Star Trek phase two, but uh, this one, I'm pretty sure, was, you know, just straight up, this is a, a whole new thing and uh, and and written just really well. Yeah, uh, they did a great job. Yeah, I think just being limited to uh, normal TV programming where they've got to do forty five minutes and uh, not a minute more, I think was uh, was probably the only thing that may have hampered it. They literally like managed to cram everything in, didn't they? Right to the end. But mm. yeah, and anybody yeah. sort of uh, we touched upon the Voyager sort of equivalent episode. Um, that's a good episode as well for anybody looking for a Voyager episode to watch. Check that out. Very similar to Silence's Lease. But that was our second episode of Long Range Census. So thank you for hanging out with us. If you do have any questions for us or want to get in touch, um, you can reach us via Twitter at Star Trek LRS. Uh, we've got a website, longrangefences.com. Uh, and you can actually email us as well if you've got any questions. Uh, that's longrangefences at iCloud.com. Um, you can also discuss this episode if you would like to continue the conversation on our exclusive private Discord channel by joining the crew of the USS Atlantic at patreon.com forward slash long range sensors. Um, on Patreon, you can choose from our science, operations and command division tiers. Uh, they give you exclusive benefits. And for a limited time, if you want to join Cosmic, um, Leewaz, Sunu and Minipacks, on our founding members tier, then you'll get both lifetime access and an exclusive role on our Discord channel. You'll also get a permanent website credit and a shout-out on the first few episodes of the show. Um, these are exclusive benefits, though they're limited to the first 10 people, which at the time of recording leaves us with just six left. So get on those rewards. Yeah, we've also got some excellent community-based goals lined up, which every support tier will be eligible for, which will include live recordings of the show, special one-off Trek lifestyle episodes, uh, and more. Our next goal will be unlocked after we hit 15 patrons, which will allow us to start producing extended editions of the show for you to enjoy. And of course, if you want to help but aren't able to contribute financially, that's absolutely fine too. Um, if you enjoy listening to the show, please tell a friend, share it on social media, transmit it to a loved one via subspace. Um, word of mouth is one of the best ways to share our content. It goes a long way to help uh, the show reach even more people. Um, so I'm Trev. You can follow me at Henry Jones Jr. on Twitter. Uh, I actually have another podcast uh, about retro and modern video gaming um, with my co-host, Stu, and that's over at consoleshock.net. Um, Al, where can people find you? 
Uh, well, everyone can find everything I'm up to at alistairmcfly.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at both Alistair McFly and at iMcFly. And if Twitch streams are your thing, uh, then you can also check out my channel where I stream Minecraft, uh, Mungers, and alternate between classic Star Trek and Star Wars games over at twitch.tv slash Alistair McFly. You've been listening to Long Range Sensors, and in the spirit of Riker, if you encounter any holes, steer clear. <laughs>